Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2020 has been defined by a deadly pandemic, precarious geopolitical relations, a sharply contracting economy, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Deep Pal, and this week we are diving deep into the state of the international order. The conclusion of the Cold War in 1991 heralded a new age of peace and prosperity under the leadership of Western powers. Yet, the reality fell far below expectations as the measures taken to actualize these promises proved to be inadequate. The unipolar moment has seen levels of disorder where multilateral institutions have decayed. Global terrorism has emerged while long-standing geopolitical rivalries have been revived. How did we reach here? from the heights of 1991 what is the nature of the problems plaguing the international system and finally what can be done to stem the decay of the international order and its constituent multilateral organizations joining us today to discuss the tumultuous state of the international order is ambassador yogendra kumar ambassador yogendra kumar retired from the diplomatic service in 2012 in the rank of secretary equivalent to vice minister in the government of india He has been ambassador to the Philippines with concurrent accreditation to Palau, Micronesia and the Marshall Islands. Earlier, he was head of the Indian mission in Namibia and Tajikistan, during which period he also handled India's policies towards Afghanistan. He has also been consul general in Tashkent, covering the entire Soviet Central Asia. He has served on the faculty of the National Defence College and in the Ministry of External Affairs. Since retirement, he has been writing and speaking on foreign policy and security affairs he has recently authored the book geopolitics in the era of globalization mapping an alternative global future published by rotledge ambassador kumar welcome to interpreting india wonderful to have you with us if i may start by asking you about the basic argument of your book you say that the world at the end of the cold war was expected to go in a certain direction and three decades from then we see that's not where we are can you tell us why you argue this oh, well thank you uh, for this podcast under the auspices of the carnegie india well my basic argument really is that uh, you know when we might place ourselves in, a, in, a, in this in the situation let us say towards the end of 1991 or towards 19 around that time uh, you realize that uh, both the us president and the soviet president they both had developed a common interest unlike the confrontation which actually had been uh, developing and growing between the two country two country superpowers since the end of the uh, since the end of the second world war practically so there was a unity of purpose and the unity of purpose actually really was that the west was actually to help the soviet union in achieving a transformation by which it will actually move towards the model political and economic political economic model of the west uh, pursuing democracy pursuing economic liberalization and giving people of the country the freedom that they actually uh, deserved and they aspired for so that was the original premise based on which the interaction between the two developed as to how the world is to be led out of the cold war confrontation but what actually happened around that time a as i i i i mentioned in my book that there was a certain degree of ideological triumphalism on the part of the west 
especially the U.S. And that actually triumphalism was in a way rooted in the feeling that it, it actually, as the as the Soviet Union was in the in in a phase of decline and in a phase of political transformation, the Soviet Union actually uh, that it was it proved the inherent superiority of the of the Western, particularly the American uh, political economic model. So one actually uh, so one actually uh, was the approach at that time of the Western countries, including as I said, Western Europe and the U.S. And the approach really was that. You encourage rapid economic change in in, in the Soviet Union. You encourage uh, you know the formal the, the the formal reforms of the state institutions like elections, uh, 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 allowing uh, political parties to develop and and press freedom and so on and so forth. But in the process, it, it wasn't taken into account that. The West, the Soviet political system was very different, with very different kind of political, uh, political culture that they had internally. So, in the process, what actually happened was that instead of the West really looking, they, in, in a way, they said they prioritized, uh, in in a manner that they prioritized the foregrounded first the economic reforms, and then they actually at the same time they said, okay, let's have the political reforms and so on and so forth. So, what actually happened in the case of Gorbachev when he was trying to carry out the perestroika? was that he was first trying to consolidate his political power to actually be in a position to carry out the economic reforms, which would, uh, let us say, uh, may require a bit of uh, disruption, but also having a consolidated political power with the, uh, the, the mass base that he was trying to achieve through that process and, and, and thereby carry out the economic liberalization that was expected. But... If you read the literature of that time, which is what I, what I mentioned in my book, the priorities actually were quite changed. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect, of course, was that uh, the, the Soviet uh, CPSUs, Communist Party Soviet Union's control over the Communist parties of Eastern and Central Europe, that was allowed to go completely with the result that there the political transformation set off by the uh, sort of loss of political control by these communist parties led to an eruption, which actually also had as an, an element of uncontrolled kind of a process of political change. So in the process, what actually happened was, as I see it, uh, is that the, the communist party of the Soviet Union was actually allowed to, to be dissolved. And when that dissolved, what actually it meant was that the only political force which was capable of managing the state apparatus across the length and breadth of the Soviet Union, that actually disappeared. And when it disappeared, it was replaced by individual factions, uh, interests of all kinds, and people with different kind of ideas, whether they're, they're, they're ethnic, ethnic identity or it is economic identity or regional or, or any other interest. So actually it became that kind of a contest between them as a result of which you find a chaos developing. So you find that the end phase of Gorbachev was such that he rapidly lost control and, and, and then Yeltsin took over. But when Yeltsin took over, that actually meant the end of the Soviet Union. So at the time when the Soviet Union ended, uh, both President Bush and President Gorbachev actually said, what was the intent behind the political transformation Soviet Union? And that's a very interesting account. They actually talk about that. I mean, they make formal statements. But when Yeltsin took over, then the same kind of a shambolic nature of political change 
That actually continued. So Yeltsin, who actually was a kind of a, let's say, a hero figure, so to say, in the, in the, in the Western conception that he was going to lead uh, to, I mean, this kind of a transformation, uh, he also got entrapped in the same kind of a dynamic, which actually was getting out of his control. And that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It led to the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And again, because the fact that disintegration was messy, because, uh, I mean, let's say, um, 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 if you consider Tsarist period and the Soviet period, for long, uh, for, for, for um, let's say, uh, in certain parts, more than a century, um, uh, sort of, uh, of one control of, of one, one power, you had move, I mean, populations, you had economic structures, you had social structures, they were all actually had been in a way interlaced. As a result of which, when this uh, breakup took place, they were worried as to how you have disrupted the economic uh, production system, supply and uh, supply supply chains and and demand and, and 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 demand chains and also overlapping of ethnic groups in different parts of the so the former soviet union the result of that was that there were these kind of whilst these breakaway states were trying to do their own internal political consolidation as a part of state formation there was also this kind of a distrust between them and let's say the russian leadership because the russians were also worried about the ethnic Russian minorities in these states. And, and therefore, in a way, it had that kind of a cascading effect. The same kind of thing you see in the case of, of Yugoslavia. When Yugoslavia was allowed to collapse, the first thing which actually happened was that the, 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 the League of Yugos, uh, the, the Communist League of Yugoslavia was allowed to collapse. So, and I make this po a larger point that when you look at the writings at that time, the, the scholastic writings, they actually all of them pay attention as to how if you have certain process of economic reform and if you have certain these kind of freedoms being uh, in injected or inscribed into the, the constitution, you have automatically a democracy. <laughs> but but the, the, there was lack of attention on their part with the uh, 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 towards the uh, how the political force, as I said, which was controlling state power, which was actually manipulating levers of state power, how that political force was to be democratized internally. And by doing that, you would be able to manage a far better political transition than was done. And you can find that kind of a, this particular uh, kind of approach, not just in the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia and elsewhere, but you find the same thing um, in, the, in, the, in the case of, for example, uh, Western intervention in Afghanistan or in Iraq. You know, again, uh, you mentioned that. So, and, and you see that in elsewhere, whether you take Libya, you take Syria, I mean, uh, you take Yemen, for example, or you take some of the African countries, you take, take countries in South Asia, Nepal, you know, it, it had a, a, a communist uh, rebellion and, 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 and a war, civil war, for 10 years. So what I'm trying to say is that here you can see a certain presuppositions as to how political transformation is to be achieved. Instead, what you have is huge amount of instability. So Yeltsin, who was at one time as a hero figure for the Soviet, uh, for, for the, for the West, he actually became a, a, a rather, what should I say, a, a very unreliable partner. And you find then that uh, the, the differences between the, between Russians and the Americans began, for example, over the Balkans, you know, for, for example. So, so what I'm trying to say when you talk about the current situation, and if you would permit, I'll just, I'll just mention to you that the National Intelligence Council report 
of uh, which actually predicts up to uh, the period of 2030 it actually mentions what kind of uh, um, uh, the, the conundrums of analysis which actually are now being faced by uh, by the analysts and i can just briefly uh, tell you right. in fact ambassador kumar why don't i come back to that but before that you know the other major question that i had it's very interesting what you said because right now we are again at the cusp of a major change in the global order right you have written about the unease about the shape of the future world now the world which seemed to have collapsed into unipolarity at the end of the cold war is possibly now closer to a bipolar configuration than it has been in the last three decades right now if we look at your analytical framework what does that tell us about where we are now all right so again that uh, one or two points i like to make here one is that uh, i think it is more aspirational to say that the world is bipolar i actually would say that the world is actually in a is, is a state of disorder because you know bipolarity of the kind that we saw in the cold war doesn't exist today you know i mean you take the you take you take the warsaw pact warsaw pact was con- was coterminous or concomitant with the what is called the cmea the, the communist bloc economic system now the the the, the nato again was um, was um, uh, sort of uh, uh, comprised let's say certain kind of political system and then the nato actually was meant to defend that political system so so that was a much neater kind of bipolarity that one is talking about but when you take when you talk about today today i am sure that neither can you say that the us today is the ultra power or the hyper power that you would dream called it in the early 90s in fact uh, people are in fact uh, the one i was going to mention to you the nic report which makes forecast up to 2030 actually it says the question really is what is the role and the capacity of of, of us today to actually even even be a pole of some kind so whether you take the us us role in with the nato or you take the us role in east asia or you take us role elsewhere the question actually is that you had the trump presidency and the biden presidency and you can see a kind of yo-yoing kind of a, a a kind of an attitude as to how the us going to engage with the rest of the world that's one aspect if you take the if you take the chinese now china of course has made impressive gains or impressive strides in terms of its political and economic power but china to call it a pole actually is a, in my view a bit of high, it's a bit of it is a bit of hyperbole because china is not yet in a position to establish and that's the point i make in my book is not in a position to establish that it has developed parallel institutional structure which will support china's role as a pole in the global order it has enormous uh, it has deep pockets undoubtedly it has uh, it has a growing military and navy but i don't think that uh, um, uh, for example even today of course we do hear about south china sea and southeast asia and so on and so forth and there are american concerns and the concerns shared by india and many other countries that perhaps the balance of power is likely to be tilting in favor of china but no balance of power has not shifted ch- tilted in favor of china in south china sea yes it has grown vis-a-vis let's say the other countries other big powers taiwan strait for example you you still can't say taiwan strait actually is, is is chinese water for example you know or east china sea for that matter so i am i am not 
at all uh, persuaded by the argument that today we have bipolarity. So what you, today you have is a messy kind of an international order where the existing or the, so the, let's say the Bretton Woods system or the UN sort of system actually as it had emerged at the end of Second World War, while that system is losing that kind of uh, effectiveness in managing global affairs, there is no other system which has emerged today. And that is why you have this kind of deepening geopolitical distrust, this possibility of military conflict. Now people are talking about that. Or the fact that I, I think I mentioned, uh, I, I read uh, that in another 10 years, half of the world's poor would be living in, would be living in, in, in collapse of fragile states. Now, that tells you the kind of pressure which are building up, which actually constitute geopolitical trends, which are going to affect as to how the global order is going to evolve. So actually, it is, it is really, I would say, it's like you can see more the debris or the detritus of the collapse of the bipolar order at the end of, this, at the, end of the Cold War, rather than say that you already have some kind of a shape of a global order. In fact, I consider it global disorder, frankly. Okay. So, Ambassador Kumar, if I can, if I can get into the specifics, you know, you talked about the debris of the earlier order, and and one of the things that you discuss in the book is the failure of multilateral institutions. So, if you can tell us a little bit about why uh, these organizations declined since the Cold War, and that you know we now hear a lot of talk about these uh, plurilateral uh, plurilateral platforms, right? Do you see them successfully taking over the role that? these traditional multilateral organizations were expected to play? Well, I'm rather doubtful of that. The reason, of course, is that these plurilateral platforms, A, they're constantly mutating. They do not have the heft and the gravitas of the established multilateral institutions like the United Nations or the WTO. And, and, and or the World Bank or the IMF. So, and and they're, they are mutating and constantly evolving depending upon the requirement or the expediency of the individual or the, or the powerful country driving that particular platform. So you find that kind of thing happening all around. The decline of the multilateral organizations uh, since the end of the Cold War uh, is, in my view, as a result of the... Uh, the, I would say, uh, deficient uh, presuppositions on the part of the Western countries, because when the neat erasure of the Soviet Union took place from the geopolitical map of the world, it was seen as a validation in absolute terms uh, of the political economic system as it, it actually, as it, as it actually existed in the U.S. and the Western Europe. So what actually happened was at the end of the Cold War, you find uh, as a part of design, US and the Western European countries to devalue the role of the United Nations. So what you actually have is that the, that the security role of the United Nations literally passed on to NATO and the other organizations created like, uh, like, the, like the coalition of willing and that sort of thing. Though of course, I write about the various attempts to reform these things, uh, the, the, these structures. But even there, you can see a basic design that the key security functions of maintaining the global order as, as it was envisaged would be in the hands of the, the United States and some of its key allies uh, in different parts of the world. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the economic functions of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of, of the United Nations. They were actually, again, sort of practically taken away 
to or shifted to the IMF and the World Bank, which were dominated again by the US and the and, and Western European countries, where actually where a certain agenda was front loaded uh, in terms of uh, in terms of accelerated economic reforms or market free market uh, kind of conditions in, in all countries around the world. It was seen as a kind of universal prescription of accelerated accelerated global economic growth. And and in that process, the development agenda of the United Nations, uh, you know, in in terms of uh, how you create, you have a balanced economic growth, that was junked for that time. You remember, and and led a lot of crises. For example, I give one example in my book again, the shock therapy administered on uh, um, uh, on Russia. Now, one thing which happened as a result of that, that when the shock therapy was administered, Afghanistan collapsed. Because Najibullah's government just was, was denied all the resources that it could get to actually survive. And, and the collapse of Najib's government led to a cycle of periodic bouts of state collapse in Afghanistan, which continues even till today. Or if you take the other example, when you had the Southeast Asian economic crisis 1997-98, Indonesia collapsed. And when Indonesia collapsed, <clears throat> it led to its breakup. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, there were atrocities committed by the Indonesian army, but the point actually is that it is a fallout of the collapse of Indonesia as a state. So you have Suharto sort of resigning and, the, and, and, and a kind of instability which actually takes place there. So you can take a lot of examples of this kind where you find that this kind of a dogmatic uh, kind of an application or, or, or of these kind of prescriptions in fact, in fact, there are uh, there are some of these Western economists who actually say that this shock therapy or this kind of a, even what's called Washington consensus, all of them actually led to collapse of many countries and the economies. And let me just make one more point here. There is kind of doctrinal approach, for example, when the 2008-2009 global financial crisis took place, the world, the the the, the IMF's uh, independent uh, inspection unit. They actually carried out a report as to why the IMF was unable to predict the collapse, which took place, for example, in the, in the, in the U.S. economy, and then had a cascading effect all over the world. And there's something very interesting. Again, I quote my book. And actually, they say that there was a kind of intellectual capture, a kind of a groupthink, which was deliberately cultivated. And there was a certain bit of political kind of a, what should I say, pressure or nudging or whatever, because of which a certain doctrinaire prescriptive approach was adopted, because of which this kind of crises erupted, uh, beginning with the, with the US itself, and from that point onwards, generating a sentiment to, against globalization even uh, amongst the US and the European public. And you can find that, that, that the 2008 crisis, it leads to the, um, uh, it, it leads to the crisis in, in Europe, it leads to the Eurozone crisis, leads to the collapse of Greece, and it goes on like that. So, so my point actually, when I, when I say that, is that because of the fact that at that time when the Cold War had ended, instead of this kind of a triumphalism, if there was a little bit more of an open-mindedness, A, first of all, applying the mind to, I mean, in the case of US or, 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 or Western Europe, if you look at the history of the growth of democracy in these countries, it actually is, is a process which actually has to be accompanied by a strong party system. 
if you don't have a strong party system because it's the party which controls the levers of state power so if the party is is, is not configured uh, as i mentioned later on when i come to the gandhian praxis if it is not configured well then you find that all these things that we're talking about instability and fragility and all the rest of it actually goes on and this debate is continuing even today so i quote again the united nations secretary general i quote the the cameron commission on state fragility and you know how they're studying these kind of things now right in fact the gandhian praxis is a very interesting uh, uh, concept that you that you introduce which i will come back to in a minute but before that if you can stay on on the question of multilateral institutions for one more minute because india is soon poised to lead uh, the g20 that's next year g22 as well as start its tenure as a non permanent member of the uh, un security council right now given the issues that you just highlighted vis-a-vis these and other multilateral agencies how should india how should new delhi approach its growing international role well um, you know um, i mean of course un india is already a member of the un security council on a stu- for uh, on a, for a two year two year term and of course as you said that india will assume the presidency of g20 now i think what india needs to do is to inject a very different kind of debate um in, uh, in into the global discourse as to how stable political transition has to be achieved and and that actually does have a kind of a development side it has an it has an inclusiveness you know inclusiveness it has it has to bring in or inject or certain bring in this element that how political difference need to be mediated in a manner that they don't lead to fractures they don't lead to you know fissures of the kind we lead to you know uh, state fragility or state collapse so i think the other kind of debate and of course now i would say the bigger challenge which actually i do talk about in my book also is how are we going to make the transition from the uh, from let us say towards the green economy or, e- or the blue economy and here i have to say that the record of the west has not been very good i have to i have to say that and i give you a simple reason now the paris uh, targets actually consider 2030 to be a, a make or break year for the for the climate uh, climate trajectory now even today you find that the and if you study the literature and whatever was being written about the commitment made by the west to help the developing countries make the transition from uh, from let us say the brown economy to the green and the blue economy that is not very good uh and 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 whether is is how to how to come to the as a green economy because that requires a major structural change in the production social system i mean something which the us is now talking about under the biden administration so and there they need to be large hearted they need to be large hearted in terms of making sure that wherever let's say these countries are facing problems they are generous with the funding and also in terms of the in terms of the IP, uh, the intellectual property issues you know and i give you this example for example everybody is now saying coal is very bad for the world and everybody seems to agree that that is the case but what about sharing of clean coal technology with uh, which the west has with these countries 
And if you share it quickly and disseminate it quickly, you're able to achieve this target much faster. Or you take another example. Let us say the other one, for example, is that there is something called retrofitting of the coal-fired power stations. So existing coal-fired power stations, they can be retrofitted to make them, make them carbon neutral or make them actually much more green in that sense, in terms of the emissions, controlling the emissions. But that is not happening. So, and I give you one more example. For example, it is now being said that the uh, the under the under the WHO's this COVAX program, there is external funding required of cons of I, I forget the figure now, but some funding is required and some funding is being given, but not as it is being actually as as the WHO is asking now. By not giving those, those amounts of money, let us say, the world is failing in tackling the COVID-19 uh, driven economic and social crisis, you know, not making, not, not helping it in being ended fast enough. And in the process, the global economy is suffering. The, the US economy has suffered. The European economy has suffered. But if you are, the point I'm trying to make is that you can be a little more, uh, what should I say, enlightened in a self-interested kind of way. I give another example. For example, uh, at the WTO, India has made this proposal that uh, the, uh, the, the current vaccine technology, the, it should be allowed to be uh, for, for emergency manufacturing because it's a crisis. But the resistance <laughs> from certain countries, and you know which countries. So, I'm only hoping that, you know, India cannot, in a way, uh, dictate its terms to the rest of the world, but it can inject some fresh ideas as to how these crises, which are now conflating upon the uh, planet, how these crises can be managed better, um, uh, you know, by, by, by a certain way. And here again, Another important point actually is that all disruptions that take place, the, the triggers for these disruptions, you know, they have a political fallout. They, they, in fact, you can see the effect of the global pandemic, uh, uh, COVID-19 on the US politics. You see that in European politics, you see it in Chinese politics and, and, and all over or everywhere. So, so the point actually, the political, uh, political fallout of these disruptive episodes, that requires a special kind of management, you know? And that is the point of my book where I talk about as to how the political mobilization for any disruptive, to, to, cap, to cope with any disruptive episode, or even for that matter, any policy intervention by a state, the political mobilization is absolutely critical for making that a success. Right. Um, the other thing that you highlight, uh, and, and you, in fact, brought this up in, in the conversation earlier, is the importance of the Gandhian praxis mm -hmm. as critical towards addressing the, the various issues that we are discussing now. Now, if you can explain this phenomena uh, uh, to us and what it means in terms of India's global position, and, and to what extent does this uh, Gandhian vision of international politics has this found expression in India's foreign policy? Right. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the significance of, uh, of, of Gandhian techniques of mobilization actually uh, has, I think it needs to be, it needs to be re-looked. Because when Gandhi appeared on the political scene in India, the national freedom struggle was actually at a fork. 
And there was this kind of an issue whether Indian nationalist figures or Indian or Indian people should go take the path of violence or what should they do? So, so for example, you had, uh, like for example, after the partition of Bengal in 1905, there was a revolutionary movement. And the revolutionary actually movement led to the repression of the British government at that time. In fact, if you remember the cellular jail, cellular jail in Port, um, Port Blair was set up just after that. And, and you remember the case of assassination by Badanlal Dhingra of Curzon Wiley, who initially thought that he wanted to actually assassinate Lord Curzon because responsible for the partition of Bengal. So when Gandhi appeared, so his first, his book, which actually in a way is an interesting way he wrote the book, and not many people understood it, is called Hind Swaraj. In 1908, it was, it was public, it, it, it was written. So what actually he did was that A, he articulates his, his approach as to how political mobilization should take place. There he talks about truth, he talks about nonviolence, he talks about non-cooperation, how it can be done, and what kind of a society India should be in that vision. The other thing which actually happened, that Gandhi was a brilliant tactician. So it was purely fortuitous that his campaign against the exploitation of the indigo farmers in Champaran, for example, in 1917, was the time when actually he did that. Now, that campaign was such a spectacular success that suddenly Gandhi emerged as the foremost leader of the Congress Party. And when he became leader of the Congress Party, he actually thoroughly democratized it. He made it accessible to the, the, the poorest of farmers, the, 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 the poorest of the, the urban sort of urban people, the city dwellers, so that it has a wider base. He introduced uh, 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 internal party elections, for example. He also, another thing actually, is very interesting, and all these things are mentioned again in my book, but it was written about that time very, very well, that thorough editing of the party accounts so that nobody could say that the money being collected by the Congress party actually was in a way uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, in a way, was being, um, uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, was actually being uh, stashed away in somebody's pockets, so to say. So, so that transparency of political, internal political democracy of the of the Congress Party, making it mass based, also um, uh, public accounting of the party accounts. That's the other thing. And also he mentions in his, in his, in his writings, I mean, his book, Satyagraha in South Africa, it talks about that. And he says that he actually is against the idea of the, any kind of a link up between big business and politics. And actually he says that any political agitation which has to be carried out for that public fund should be raised. You know? So the point actually is that, you know, in one way, what he did was that he suddenly gave the poor people, the peasantry, a certain kind of a sense of empowerment, you know, because at that time, Nehru and everybody writes about that, how he electrified the, the rural peasantry, because they suddenly felt that there are people coming and listening to us, you know, they're, they're paying attention to us. So that is one aspect. The other thing is that because of the, he had the impact he had on the Congress party, he said two, three things. First, he said, you have to believe in nonviolence. Secondly, you had to believe in khadi, which is the hand-spun, you know, fabric uh, to, to, to develop. And thirdly, honesty. And he said, apart from that, I impose on you 
no preconceived ideas as to how the party's platform should be. So, for example, Hind Swaraj, he says, uh, I, you believe it only if you are convinced about it. If you don't believe in it, don't believe in it. But he made sure that the party actually was organized like that. The result of that was that when the Jallianwala Bagh atrocity took place, which was a horrific atrocity, he was in a position to channelize the public anger through on a non-violent path. And that is what he continued all along. The other thing which I write in my book again is very interesting. His ashram that I mean his ashrams, which actually are are, are considered to be something like you know in in the West they say it's something like the I forget the name uh, the, the the coffee house culture or something like that that you actually have a, a, a place where you discuss various ideas. But the ashrams, as we Indians understand, is has a certain you know a certain personal credo how you're going to lead your life. And, 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 and those things are very clearly laid out. What time you're going to get up, what time you're going to sleep, this, that, and the other. But the interesting thing about that, and again, I mentioned in my book that, that the people who are attracted towards it, and Nehru also writes about it, so many other people write about that, that those ashrams he used to develop ideas as to how the so social transformation is to, is to, come, is to come about. So developing ideas on education, developing ideas on public health, developing ideas on how the agrarian sort of productivity is to be raised, you know, how, you know, uh, uh, how with, the, I mean, a poor farmer, how he can modernize uh, his, uh, his, his, his agrarian, I mean, agricultural product. And, and and health and education, all those kind of things. So in a way, what he did was that he actually, in a way, challenged the then existing uh, sort of uh, institutions of higher education or, or or secondary education and the 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 the, the health system with the British had introduced and things like that. So you know, so 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 what I'm trying to say is that this control he continued right till the end, and and therefore what actually happened in 1947 was that the the party was able to step into the position of power of governance without any disruption because the party actually had prepared itself for that but the other thing which is important is that the sense of self 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 effacement and i give you the example again in 1947 uh, in fact as you know that Sardar Patel was the most powerful figure in the Congress party. But Gandhi actually uh, preferred Nehru. And then they were able to actually, he was able to generate an opinion as a result of which Nehru became the, the, the president of the Congress party and thereby became the, the prime minister of India. So Patel actually was, was obviously quite upset. But he, within a couple of days, he actually looked at himself as somebody who actually was following Gandhi's bequest, Gandhi's uh, uh, the values and Gandhi's injunctions. So in fact, uh, if I can just uh, make this, this particular point, that on the day of his assassination, when Patel was sitting with him and he said, I cannot run, work in the government because the differences are so much between me and, me and, and Jawaharlal. So Gandhi said to him that I was all thinking that maybe since you don't get along, so one of you run the government, the other one the party. But today I've decided both of you are going to be in the government and make it work, you know. And that was his last words of Patel, you know. So as a result of this smooth and seamless kind of power transition which took place, 
The resilience of state institutions in India actually has been what one can say is the main reason why today the India took that post-independence trajectory and, and, and the resilience of institutions and the way they have continued. So you find making of the Indian constitution. And, and there again, he got everybody together, Ambedkar, who actually was opposed to him. He said, you are, the, you are going to draft the constitution. And, and, you know, getting people from different parties to make the interim government work. Yeah. Ambassador Kumar, uh, now circling back to the, to the main argument that we started this conversation with, you know, as we record this today, we are in the middle of a global pandemic and, and the response of the, the major states over the past year obviously have left quite something to be desired. Now, my question is, how do you see the international system addressing issues such as future pandemics or climate change and political fragility and so on, would you believe that there have been progressive structural changes in the international order that can help? I think you need to really uh, learn very hard lessons from the current pandemic uh, because uh, we all know that the pandemic was badly handled and you can actually you can begin as to how it arose in China. It's, uh, you know, it's trans, trans, transmissibility, it's lethality were actually kept under wraps uh, in China. And they have been, now the leaked documents from, from China have been published in the, in the papers where they said that there was mishandling of the pandemic, the outbreak of pandemic in China in the early, uh, in, in the early weeks. And you can say, I mean, if you, if you say maybe early months, so the point actually is that, uh, so uh, I would say uh, that's one aspect, a very critical aspect. The other aspect is that the pandemic, the outbreak of pandemic is not something which was not anticipated. In fact, we all know the U.S. and everybody's talking about you. In fact, all these uh, strategy reports that you read, outbreak of pandemics is actually mentioned as, as a given. But what you find actually is, in fact, from what I have learned, in 2017, the WHO actually had conducted a war game that how would the crisis be handled in case a, a, a pandemic, pandemic actually erupts. And no lessons were drawn from that. And a lot of the commentary from strategists that I've read about this, that the U.S. did not think that it really mattered to them. The UK did not think, the Western Europe did not think. Nobody in that sense was prepared. Though we all have, all of all countries have what are called disaster relief agencies. So they weren't prepared for it. So I would actually say that I would draw basically two lessons from this. One is that A, we need to develop institutions, national institutions, and then then, then actually link up with global institutions where you actually are prepared for all kinds of contingencies as far as disasters are concerned. So it, it, is, it, it begins at the very top, at the national leadership level, but it has to come down to community levels because the community, the local communities have to be geared and to be prepared through constant uh, sort of training and reskilling and so on and so forth to handle different kind of disasters, you know, uh, as they arise, because uh, disaster response during earthquake is different from, let's say, a pandemic. 
I'm giving one example, but, but you can just keep thinking and you had to constantly keep on war gaming about these things that how, what kind of things might actually happen. So you need that kind of a structure and that structure again requires, I would say a lot of uh, hard headed analysis and a lot of work together on this. That is one aspect. The other aspect I would say is that this temptation and I would again, say I think uh, I would actually say that China should have played a better role, frankly, that uh, that these crises should not be seen as a, as a kind of a geopolitical opportunity. So the aggressiveness that you found that, you know, in the sense that you thought that just because you are, you've been able to control the pandemic faster than anybody else, therefore you can then start readjusting power relations internationally, whereas actually it's not a question of power relations. It's more the question of survival of the global community, the global society. So, so those lessons need to be drawn. And another aspect, which is where what I say in the book about how political consolidation, political management, mobilization is very important, is that, you know, this crisis, for example, has taken place for over a year. There's a now, I mean, just celebrated or mark the anniversary of the outbreak of the crisis in India. Now, a crisis of this magnitude stretched across, let's say, 12 months, 13 months, 14 months, actually is a bigger challenge than any kind of challenge one has faced before. Two things. First of all, it is not very easy to sustain the national willpower to continue with that because a whole lot of issues keep coming up. Like today, you know, you find that in many places, people are sort of protesting against lockdowns, as an example I'm giving, or the issue that, you know, there is a kind of a dilemma as to you want to protect public health or you want to reignite or, or, or re refire the economy. You know, these are major, major policy issues that if all national leaders actually had to face. So that's one side of it. So you have to see how you're going to prepare your political mobilization capabilities that the national willpower does not flag, does not weaken during a protracted crisis. And mind you, this is just one crisis. We had another crisis on our border. So you can have multiple crises erupting at the same time. So it requires a lot of, as I said, war gaming and strategic thinking and, and scenario building and so on and so forth. Yeah, right. Ambassador Kumar, thank you very much for, for joining us today. My great pleasure. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Appreciate that. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at cunningindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.